You are listening to a Whitebridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. What, do you, what does it mean, you will carry me safe to shore? I think of the verses that are on the banners up here. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He'll get you to that shore. And only by the grace of God will any, any of us ever arrive there. It's because of what Christ has done and what God is doing. It's kind of what we're going to be looking at this morning. If you'll open your Bibles to chapter 1 of Philippians. Chapter 1 of Philippians. And, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 2 of Philippians. We've been enjoying this study. And uh, we're looking forward to what God has to say to us this morning. Chill out chapter 2 of Philippians, and we're going to begin with verse 12. And would you stand with, with me as I read this portion of Scripture? Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. In order that I may boast in the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. May God bless his word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, now as we open up the scripture, we pray that you would, you would awaken us to the things of, of your Holy Spirit to say to us individually what we need to hear. And Lord, that we would come away from this morning having, having heard from you and intent on doing business with you in the coming week. So we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to thank uh, thank Alex and Julia for giving me a great illustration this morning. No, just kidding. won't put you on the spot too much. I was just thinking, though, that now that Alex is is engaged and he's on the hockey team, I think we can make use of those pre-game locker room conversations and Every married man on the team can just, okay, it's like, so your turn today. Tell Alex what you think. Uh, you know, Alex, what do you think? Start premarital sessions in the locker room. There you go. I think that's a great idea. Have you all noticed the sermon title this morning? Anybody know the sermon title this morning? It's, it's entitled, Getting Into Shape by Working Out. Doesn't seem like a very good Thanksgiving title, does it? Because you're looking forward to going home and having turkey today, probably, or something like that. Paul says in chapter uh, 4 of 1 Timothy, he says in verse 8, For physical training is of some value, but godliness or spiritual training has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. So I'm not talking about physically working out and physical fitness. I'm talking about spiritual fitness this morning and spiritual uh, training Physical training and, and, and working out is a great metaphor. So I want you to just have that 
on your mind as we go into the scripture that we're going to look at this morning. Think about it. Let it not be far from your mind, this, these, these metaphor of physical working out and training, getting in shape. Because Paul writes in verse 12 of the passage we've read, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. For someone to work at something, there usually has to be a goal in mind, doesn't it? I mean, you don't really end up working hard at anything that doesn't have a goal in mind. For example, my goal, and I started about two weeks ago, I told my physiotherapist this morning this, uh, my goal in playing hockey this year, I started working out because my goal is that as a middle-aged wannabe hockey player, I don't want to get injured. Now, that's pretty kind of a lame goal, but I'm confessing to my hockey team, it's not really all about the goals. and the, it, I just don't want to get injured. That's you know, my goal. You know. Somebody that's a triathlon athlete or a marathon runner or something might be the goal is to beat the last time you know, that, that they did that. Everybody that's working at something has to have a goal. And Paul's saying that there's a goal in our spiritual working out of our salvation as well. But in order to get to that, you've got to go back to the passage that we looked at last week. He's saying that the workout goal of working out your salvation is to get in shape, and the shape is the shape of Jesus Christ. The Christ life is the goal of our spiritual workout and that's the fitness training that we're, we're working towards when we work out our salvation. In chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. We said that that word, uh, phroneo, means this, this is mindset, disposition, your bias, your bent, your whole attitude, your inner heart way. The shape and the conditioning of your life has to be like Christ. He's our goal And so naturally the question is, well, what is the shape of Christ's life? And you'll notice on your your, uh, pink insert in your bulletin, I've drawn the shape of Christ's life. Okay, we're going to look at that together. And uh, so the the shape of Christ's life, our first point, the question or the conditioning of, of Christ's life is very much linked to the choices that he made when, we, walked, when he saw, we saw him walking on the earth. In fact, you could even put in there along those choices all the way down that, that, that uh, stairs, you could put the last one just before the cross, you could put the word Gethsemane. Huge. That was a huge choice that Jesus made just before the cross. And so looking at verses 6 to 11, we get a, a feeling of... Uh, what the shape of Christ's life is so that we can know the shape of our lives that we're working out towards. Notice, first of all, verse 6, that God, Jesus being in very nature God didn't think that that's something he had to hang on to. He put that aside and he left the glories of heaven with the, the incredible fellowship he had with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit for eternity past. Can you get that into your mind? Eternity past. He put it aside for just 33 years of time in existence in this human life. And he started down a long stairway from the glories of heaven. 
And the stairway led him to many choices that he could have said no to at any point along the way. Sometimes we think that Jesus was somehow immune. It says he was, in, he was tempted in all ways such as we are yet without sin. That means that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, while he walked this earth, could have disobeyed the Father's will. Every capacity, just like you and I have, to disobey. And so he left and he set aside the rights and privileges of being God. It says the next step down, it says he made himself nothing. The word is kenosis. It means to empty yourself. Empty. He emptied himself of all that was his right and privilege as the God of the universe. It says that he took the nature of a servant. He was in nature God, but he took the nature of a servant while he was on earth. Incredible. He was made then in human likeness and in his appearance as a man. He humbled himself. He was obedient. And that obedience led him from one choice to the next choice that God put before him until it led him to the very Gethsemane where he made the big choice and he said, I'm going to go and fulfill the Father's will for my life. I will die on the cross for sinners. Each one of us, each one of these choices Jesus made... Sorry. Each one of these choices that Jesus made was like a downward steps. Like, if you can imagine a staircase from heaven, and, and each choice that Jesus made was like a downward spiraling staircase down into the cruel, contaminated existence of human beings like you and I. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, laid aside all of that he had the right and the privilege to, and while retaining all of the divine attributes submitted his will to the Father. So the diagram that you see in your insert is Jesus emptying himself all the way to the cross for our forgiveness. Notice that the verbs in verses 6 to 8 are all Jesus doing them. He did this for and to himself. He emptied himself. He humbled himself. He was obedient unto death, even the death on the cross. He did it all voluntarily, Offering. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. And then you'll notice that after he has done this downward spiral, that, that then we see God therefore exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name. And then after that, every decision is made by the Father. God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Voluntarily, every tongue will confess He is Lord. And if he's Lord, I'm not. And there's implications on that. So that's the scripture. This is the shape of the discipled life because it is the shape of the Christ life. And we need to think long and hard and deep about what are the implications of that for us. The natural inclination of our flesh. I want you to know this. The natural inclination of your flesh is inverted to what that diagram looks like right now. Okay, So instead of it being the downward staircase, the cross, and then the upward staircase, the inverted fleshly, what the devil would like you to do, what the world would love you to go into, what your flesh, your sin that lives in you yet will, will call you to with all the conflicting passions and desires and temptations that yet war against you, finding your joy in God will lead you to the inverted diagram where you will exalt yourself, you will fulfill yourself, you will pleasure yourself, you will be the center of yourself. 
And then somewhere along the way, in the mercy of God, I pray, he will humble you. King Nebuchadnezzar learned that, didn't he? He said, those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. Your pride, you see, is like the cholesterol clogging to your veins and arteries. And humility is there's no other virtue describing Christ's likeness like humility. Servanthood. That is the health of a spiritual disciple walking after Christ. So that's the shape of Christ's life. Well, how do we work out then to get into shape? How do we work out our salvation with fear and trembling? By the way, that fear and trembling might have thrown you off. It throws me off. We like to put in words like awe and reverence. I think that the reason Paul chose the word fear and trembling when we work out our salvation is because Paul is not talking about next year's budget. And Paul is not talking about a math equation. (laughs) Paul is talking about your salvation. How can you play fast and loose with something in your hands so precious as your eternal state? So even though it is by grace through faith and it's all what God has done, I'm going to work this thing out. And it's, it's precious. I'm not going to mess around with this, with fear and trembling. How do we do that? How do we work it out? Just as in physical fitness we need to get our bodies in shape and stay in shape, there's two, two responses that Paul has One response is what we do, and one response is what God does. In verse 12, it says that our responsibility is to work out our salvation. And that word work out has the idea of translate. Translate what you have been given by the grace of God into your life and make it become who you are. Freely you've received, now start freely giving. You've been forgiven of much, now forgive much. Let the grace of God and salvation that you've been given because Jesus paid for it all on the cross actually be authenticated in the way you live your life privately with people in any challenge you face, whatever it is. Let it be lived out. Work it out. In Paul's day, the the word was used in other literature to describe a field or a mine. So you work out a field, you work out a, a, a mine, you, means you get as much yield out of that field or that mine as you can. You've been given this incredible, precious gift of God's grace in salvation through Christ. You've been given X number of years to live in this body on this earth. Paul says, work it out. Make it count. Get the best yield as you can. Paul says, if I'm going to remain in the body for these Philippian church he says, it's got to be fruitful labor. It's got it's to count for something. That's what he's saying. And so Paul is saying, work it out. Please distinguish in your minds between working for and working out. We don't work for our salvation. We cannot do that. We don't live right in order to get right. We get right in order to live right. And that's an important distinction. So if you've seen your sin... You've repented, you've turned to the only sure solution for sinners found in Christ. And through his death and resurrection, you know that he purchased a righteousness that you can have absolutely as a free gift by faith in in Jesus. Then you're not wanting to work for it. You can't contribute to it. Rather, you're going to let it get worked through in your life. You're going to let it count. You're going to authenticate. 
Lest we misunderstand Paul's theology of sanctification, which is the focus, by the way, of our team that's going off in about a month overseas. Lest we misunderstand Paul's theology of sanctification. In verse 13, as soon as he says, work out your salvation, your own salvation with fear and trembling, he says, for it is God who is at work in you. God's at work in you, both to will and to do. I'm so glad that Jesus did not save me and put me on his little trophy shelf and, and leave it all up to me to try and become like Jesus myself. He gave me his very self. He gave me his nature, his Holy Spirit, to produce in me what I cannot produce in myself. Paul, no one understood this more than Paul. In fact, the same word, work out, is found five times in Romans chapter 7. Do you know what Romans chapter 7 is? That's Paul's Gethsemane. Romans chapter 7 is where Paul is wrestling with his own will against the will of God. And he is, he is, he's got the one angel on one side and the devil on the other side on the shoulder whispering in the ear. And he's wrestling with the sin that lives in him. And in the middle of it all, he says in verse 18 of, of Romans chapter 7, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. And the word is the same. I can't work it out. I can't work it out. You see, he's saying, he's just making the confession. I can't work this out on my own. Paul came to it. Do you, have you come to it? Have you come to see that? The same word is used in 2 Corinthians 4.17 for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us. They're working it out. A salvation, an eternal glory that outweighs them all. James uses it in chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith works out perseverance, develops perseverance. So you see, the Scriptures teach us with this word study, the Scriptures teach us that we're not able to work out and to bring maturity our own salvation, so God's at work in us. God's at work. Remember the key verse. He who began the good work is going to bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We count on him to do his part. God uses our struggles with sin, our troubles in life, our sufferings. And he works in two ways. Verse 13. He works in us both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Let's take a look at that. Both to will and to do. The word for God's work and our work is the same. So the idea is that God's working in you so you can work it out. And God's not just working in us so that we can work his will, that we could be just a bunch of externally obedient people, but he's doing in it, uh, working in us both to will and to do. So he's not just working for our obedience, but he's working so that we'll want to obey his will. That's a much deeper level, isn't it? He does not just want us to obey, but he wants us to want to obey. That was why when we look at Jesus, who is the shape we're trying to conform to and transform to and work out to, we see that Jesus was absolutely yielded to the Father's will. You could not drive a wedge between what Jesus wanted and what God the Father wanted. Can you imagine Jesus walking on earth with his disciples and, and they're walking along and one day 
Jesus turns to the disciples and says, you know, guys, I want you to know that the Father is really asking a lot of us. And, you know, honestly, I don't really, I don't really want to go that way, but let's, let's just do it to please the Father. Like, I can't imagine Jesus being that way. Because, you see, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. In other words, you ever, you ever find yourself going without food? Not because you're fasting, but because you just lost yourself in an activity, in something that you're passionate about. You just forget to eat. You realize, oh my goodness, it's 3 o'clock, I didn't have lunch. You know what? That's what Jesus was doing that day in John 4 when he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And what was that? He was sharing the gospel with a Samaritan woman. And he forgot to eat. And the disciples came back and said, you want some food? And he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. You see, you could not divide between what God the Father wanted and what Jesus wanted. Now, if you want to get your life into shape like Jesus, then you can't ignore your desires. You can't ignore your wants. You need a new wanter. Jesus gave you that at, at your salvation, but it's all messed up and clogged down. It's got all kinds of stuff around it that needs to be cleaned up. Your new wanter is exactly what Jesus wants. It lives in you. We've been made partakers of the divine nature, and that gives you a new wanter. But you see, in this life, you're going to have other things that clog up that wanter. And so, this spiritual shape of Jesus' life has at the center a hunger for God and doing what God wants. You see, C.S. Lewis radically says it this way. He says, in the end, everybody is going to get what they want. Those are the scariest words I've read by C.S. Lewis. And, And there's a nature of truth to what he says. In other words, you see, heaven is not going to be populated with a whole bunch of reluctant churchgoers. Heaven is not going to be populated with a whole bunch of people who, who wrote in their grade five Gideon New Testament, yeah, I accept Jesus as my Savior, and then live the rest of your life in wanting everything else that Jesus doesn't offer them, but that this world offers them. Now, the struggle is there. Paul talks about it in Romans 7. Jesus even spoke of it in Gethsemane. The struggle is there. Being torn into two places. But you see, the point is, is that at some level, you need to want, you need to desire Jesus. And so you say that God the Father is in me both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. So the question that you're asking might be, what if I don't have the will? What do I do? How do I pray? When I, when I wake up in the morning, I don't have the will to read the Bible or pray. Or, or, or I'm in a conflictive relationship and I don't have the will to forgive that person, release them from my judgment. What do I do when, I, when I, I'm so tempted and I'm struggling? You know what I think you should do? I honestly believe this is what we ought to do. I do this. I try to say to God, God, I want to confess that I don't want to obey you. Be honest. Just say, God, I don't want to obey you. I am so conflicted. I am the double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. There's such duplicity in my life. God, I, I want to obey you. I'm trying, about it, but there's part of me that doesn't want to. Well, you see, I think the best way to pray in that is, Lord, you, 
you confess your sin of not wanting it. And then you say, but Lord, I'm willing to be made willing. I think that's a good prayer. I'm willing for you to work in me my will so that I'll be willing. See, that's what, it, that's what chapter 2, verse 13 in Philippians says. For it is God at work in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. He doesn't want us a bunch of little robots running around doing what he wants but not wanting to do what he wants. How is Jesus prized? How is the world going to want to know Jesus if all we are doing is like a bunch of little hypocrites running around and doing something externally that we really don't want to do inwardly? How does that show that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain? So Jesus must be prized. Oh, I know the battle. If you've walked with the Lord a while, if you're trying to pursue righteousness, you've got to know the battle. That's the good fight of faith. In New York City on Fifth Avenue, right, right in front of the Rockefeller Center, apparently there's this, and I've been to New York City, but there is a statue of Atlas, the Greek mythological god, Atlas, 15 feet high, and, and he's holding up over his head the universe. It's an incredible structure. You can see all of his muscles are straining and tense and defined, and there's a look of strain upon his face, and there he is holding up the universe. And across the street at St. Patrick's Cathedral, if you were to walk in past the sanctuary, back behind the altar, you would find a little statue. It's about this tall, four feet or so. And it's the boy, Jesus, at the age of eight or nine. He's got his hands out like this. And in one hand, he's got the world. And there's a look of serenity in his face. You see, you can live the Christian life the Atlas way or the Jesus way. You can pursue God any which way. And if you think you can do it on your own, if you try to do it in your flesh, you will fail over and over again. You will strain at it and you will try and you will frustrate yourself and you will fail. Or you can listen to Jesus when he says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and Learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and you can find rest. You can find rest for your souls. There's a lot involved in getting it into shape, isn't there? And keeping in shape. In verse 14, Paul moves along to talk about the fact that a spiritual workout plan cannot be held alone in your private house. That he calls you to work it out in the public gym of your relationships, the strained ones, the joyful ones, the uncomfortable ones, the messy ones. And so he says, do everything without arguing and complaining. The word arguing here, complaining, is a word that the complaining word is uh, reminiscent of Numbers 14.2, Israel in the wilderness grumbling against Moses. Something doesn't go the way you'd like it. You get asked to do something you don't want to do. You grumble, complain, not thinking about what the Lord might want to teach you in it. The word for arguing has the idea of answering to, having to have the last word. 
And so you see, the workout plan to get into shape of Christ for you is not going to be held all by yourself, just you and Jesus. It's going to be worked out in the relationships that Paul is talking about. And that's where God calls us. I'm not going to preach the rest of the sermon today. We're going to carry on next week with the same text. Because we're going to gather around the Lord's table now. And I just want to draw your attention to one more verse before we move on. It's verse 17. And Paul shows himself to be a great athlete spiritually. As he works out his salvation, he says that, he says, if, even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. And this drink offering was literally a glass or a chalice of wine. And the wine was, was literally poured out on the altar as a sacrifice to the Lord in the Old Testament. And Paul's saying, that's, that's my life. I, if I'm going to be poured out, that's fine, as long as it's for the faith of somebody else to grow. And, you know, as we gather around the Lord's table this morning, we see the, 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 the table set before us. What a picture, and what an apt picture of Jesus, who, who was obedient unto death and poured out his life for us sinners. So as we gather around the Lord's table, I, I think that every time we share the Lord's Supper, it's a spiritual checkup. I don't know how often you go to the doctor for a physical checkup, but this is a spiritual checkup. We get, to say, we get a chance to say, okay, how am I doing? How am I doing in my fitness? How much shame am I carrying? How much guilt? How's my relationships? How much conflict is in my life? How am I doing with stress? Is there peace in my heart? Do I have joy? Come before the Lord today with whatever you bring. And would you come to Jesus and let him take it from you and for you?